This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 184th edition of the program. Today is Friday, March 15th, and before we get to the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Alex Dunn, Ananda Mide, Arlene Torres, Bara Alsgul, Cheryl Tyler, David Markook, Density McCartney, Family and Addiction Counseling, LLC, Geraldine Settle, Jason, Larry Adams, Mark Loomis, Masudi, Michelle Andre, Nathaniel Calloway Jr., Patricia Stevenson, Ramon Lazo, Renee Pere, Richard Wimbley, and Cheryl McDonald. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd like to sign up to support the show, you can do so by doing a number of things. You can either support us on YouTube by clicking join below the video, and that'll give you access to our videos before they go public. You can also go to humanistreport.com support to become a PayPal member, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So thank you all to everyone who signed up or to the individuals who are considering it. So on today's episode, We'll talk about how CNN was out to get Tulsi Gabbard for the entirety of her town hall and how she was grilled by Stephen Colbert for rejecting the U.S. Empire's propaganda. Additionally, we'll talk about Pete Buttigieg's fake support for Medicare for All and why he's just another establishment Democrat for you all to dismiss. Also on this episode, Julian Castro is attacking progressives in order to propel his presidential campaign. Facebook censors Elizabeth Warren. Establishment journalists attack Bernie Sanders for the dumbest reasons yet. Joe Biden hits back at some of his progressive critics. And we'll talk about the nationwide college scam and why our president is officially Kevin from the office. So all of these topics will be discussed on today's show, along with some others. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the program. I warned you guys after and even before Bernie Sanders launched that the establishment is going to do everything they possibly can do to smear him in an effort to tank his chances because they don't want Bernie Sanders to win. They view him as an existential threat to the status quo. So if that means that they have to lie and be overly disingenuous to take him down, they're going to resort to that. But even after I tried to get you guys to know what to expect, even I couldn't have predicted the extent to which the attacks on Bernie Sanders would be absolutely moronic. Because if you want to know about the latest so-called scandal involving Bernie Sanders, well, there's some anti-Bernie journalists in this country that were doing some opposition research, and they found an old video of Bernie from 1986 where he said something that is very controversial in their view. Take a look. But during the course of this campaign, if you follow the issues that we're talking about, funding for social services, I am not going to be niggardly about funding for daycare. We are going to break the crisis in daycare 
in the state of Vermont if I'm elected governor. We're not going to have a situation where in some counties you have 15% availability. I don't know if you were able to spot the controversy there, but in case you missed it, the controversy was that in the context of talking about federal and state spending with regard to daycare, he used the word niggardly, which is actually a word that doesn't mean what it sounds like. If you go to the dictionary definition, it means reluctant to spend or meanly or ungenerously small or scanty. Now, admittedly, it's not a very common word, but it's essentially a synonym for stingy. There's, there's no controversy. If you, if you hear the context that he's using this word in, especially, that makes it even less controversial, but nonetheless, the fact that he used a word that sounds like a slur is problematic because as Mediaite journalist Tommy Christopher says, I know it's not a slur, but I've always wondered why a person would choose to say that word when stingy would do just as well. This is going to be a long, long, long election cycle. I mean, why do synonyms exist? Why do we say pragmatic when we could be saying practical? I don't know. Language is this complex thing that we use to describe what we're thinking and feeling. But they're trying to dig up a controversy here in order to say, gotcha, Bernie. And it's just idiotic. And as Matt Binder puts it, this is almost as dumb as that time in 2016 when Bernie supporters were reciting the classic protest chant, hey, hey, ho, ho. And people pretended that it was a sexist slur directed at Hillary. Yeah, it's it's almost as if they're trying to do whatever they can to get Bernie Sanders and paint his supporters as racist, sexist Bernie bros. And there was another time back in 2016, now that Matt Binder points that out, where Hillary Clinton was attending a fundraising event. It was a high-dollar fundraising event with actor Ben Affleck, and there were protesters that were throwing dollar bills at the limo as it was driving by to head to this event. And people said that that was sexist because if you are at a strip club, you throw dollar bills at strippers, so since they were doing that to Hillary Clinton, even though it was in a completely different context, well, they were trying to do something that was sexist. And it's just, I mean, they try to remove the context away from things, and they try to do whatever they can to get Bernie Sanders. Now, the reason why we know that this is them doing nothing more than trying to get Bernie is because this wasn't controversial when another politician used the same word. There's plenty of people, as you know, Matt, in this Congress that will always send a blank check when it comes to spending money on, on defense, on war, but are a little bit more uh, niggardly, if you will, on spending money on on um, the actual on veterans when they come home. That was from 2012, and there really wasn't a peep from any of these same journalists who all of a sudden take issue with Bernie using that word. Now, 
I'm going to share an article from The Root that individuals like David Dole and Matt Binder are sharing, where it actually talks about this word and its use at length. And I think it's very helpful for people who have never heard of this word before and who want to get Bernie here. I think that this will be a really insightful read. Now, I know that after talking about that, it's going to seem impossible for me to say this, but the attacks on Bernie Sanders literally get even more idiotic. And I know this is difficult to fathom, but they do. So as consultant and contributor to The Guardian, Tom Watson asks on Twitter, why does Bernie always say brothers and sisters and not the other way around? (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Wow, Tom. (laughs) Congratulations, Tom. You got him. I think that this is undeniable proof that Bernie Sanders is sexist. Now, the person who just stole the show with the perfect response here is Katie Halper, who asks this question to Tom Watson. Why does Tom end his last name with son and not daughter? It's so good. It's so good. So look, I know that this is only the beginning, but I need you guys to understand we are going to be putting up with these types of just hacky, frankly, idiotic attacks for the entirety of the primary. And if Bernie Sanders is able to make it on through to the general, then we're going to have to deal with a different set of stupidity and just idiotic attacks from the right. So, this is only the beginning, so buckle up. It's going to be a long ride, and it's going to be tiring, and it may make your head explode multiple times over, but it'll be worth it to put up with this if it means we get a politician in office who actually is going to genuinely fight for policies that would benefit our lives. But it's just, it's sad that they're not even really trying to make a really substantive case against Bernie Sanders. They're going for these gotchas that really say more about them and their desperation than it does about Bernie Sanders. It's just, man, these people are toxic. And I don't think that these journalists realize what they're doing to their credibility because this is this is hacky. It's clear that they have an agenda and they don't care how biased they look, but keep it up because... This isn't going to work. I can only see this helping Bernie Sanders because it communicates to average Americans that, well, you know, if if these people, these elitists, if these Democratic Party loyalists and sycophants are going to these lengths and diving that low, or stooping that low, rather, to attack Bernie, then there's something about him where he poses a threat to the establishment that I like. So I think that's what they're going to think. And I don't think they realize these these uh, journalists attacking Bernie that this isn't going to help them. It's only going to hurt their cause. And um, yeah, we're going to keep fighting them, but we don't have to do very much because I think that these are arguments that are just absurd on their face. But I mean, it still demonstrates why we need to be hyper vigilant about the attacks because they're looking for anything. If Bernie Sanders accidentally lets out a fart, understand that it will be in the news and on Twitter the following day.
So I want to talk about a lesser known 2020 presidential contender, and that person is Julian Castro. Now, he has not been on my radar. In fact, I don't really think he's been on anyone's radar because up until this point, he's done nothing to differentiate himself from a field of candidates that all kind of bring something unique to the table. So for example, Andrew Yang, he's bringing universal basic income to the table. We have Tulsi Gabbard talking about a strong progressive foreign policy position. We have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren being economic populists. But when it comes to Julian Castro, it's very clear that he doesn't really offer anything unique. But as we learn more about him, we're not necessarily learning more about his policy positions, but we are learning that he is someone who is a political opportunist. And he made that clear in an interview where he decided to throw not just one progressive, but two progressives under a bus in order to propel his own candidacy. Now, the individuals who he decided to throw under a bus are Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar. So first, I want to talk about what he says about Ilhan Omar. He's going to target her specifically, someone who already is a target of harassment and abuse because of her identity, but he's going to pile on and say that what she did was in fact anti-Semitic and accuse her of doing something that she's not actually guilty of. Well, I was glad that she apologized. You know, I don't believe that, that she's, you know, in her heart an anti-Semite, but I do believe that those comments uh, gave life to some old tropes, uh, biases against Jews as having dual loyalties uh, or somehow, uh, you know, dominating uh, industries or politics with money. And so I was glad that she apologized. Uh, I'm also glad that, uh, that the House is condemning bigotry. Uh, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitism over the last couple of years. Uh, we've also seen a rise in uh, you know, anti-Muslim hate uh, and hate directed at others. But yeah, I'm glad that she apologized. Uh, I do think that you know, it's fair whether the country is uh, Israel or a European country or a Latin American country for people to criticize or to, to pick apart the policy that the United States is taking toward that country. Mm -hmm. But it should be done, I think, in a constructive way. Uh, and not in a way that gives rise to, to old tropes. So to me, hearing him say that, it demonstrates that he is a spineless coward because rather than standing up for her, he chose to do what everyone else did. He chose to do what's politically expedient and he chose to throw her under a bus. He says that her comments, quote, gave life to some old tropes, but he kind of contradicts himself towards the end there because he says, look, it's not completely unreasonable to criticize Israel and specifically criticize America's relationship with Israel, but the way that she did it, it just wasn't constructive. Okay, well, if you're going to say that, then you actually need to be specific. Because when I hear what she says, I think that that is, in fact, a legitimate criticism. So if you're saying that criticism of Israel is acceptable, albeit in a very specific way, then you need to cite some examples and not just be a political coward and say what everyone else is saying. Oh, well, what she did was anti-Semitic. Well, then how do you criticize Israel? How do you navigate this topic while not being anti-Semitic? You gotta give us your ideas. And I understand that he had limited time in that short interview, but you can't just smear someone effectively and then explain that they're anti-Semitic while not giving us 
an example as to how she specifically went wrong and how she could improve and actually criticize Israel in a constructive way. And we know we're not going to get that example from Julian Castro because this is someone who was an establishment politician who would go along with the status quo on this particular issue. He would not criticize Israel. We know that. Because back in 2012 at a lunch event with APEC, he basically already swore allegiance to APEC and talked about how wonderful they are because they help facilitate this strong relationship between the United States and Israel. The work that APEC has done and is doing, uh, and the reason that we're here today as well, the third thing I learned was how important Israel is to that region in the United States. Obviously democratic, a country that shares the values of the United States uh, and is a beacon of hope in the Middle East, uh, and very importantly, a great diplomatic friend to the United States, and one that we have every interest in supporting. Here, in, here at home, uh, APAC has been essential in maintaining that very strong connection those ties and ensuring that in Congress, that in state legislatures, and even in local municipalities, that elected officials, policymakers, decision makers understand uh, the importance of the relationship between the United States and Israel. I return uh, willing and ready to be supportive of maintaining that very strong tie between our country and Israel uh, and encouraging others to go to Israel, to learn about it. I look forward. Uh, hopefully at some point in the not too distant future getting back to Israel and learning more about the country because as as relatively small as the nation is we certainly get, didn't get to see and learn everything that we could have and so I look forward to returning in the future. So as Julian Castro says all of this wonderful things about Israel and ignores the fact that they are carrying out a literal apartheid right now against Palestinians, I just wonder if Julian Castro is criticizing Ilhan Omar because he genuinely believes that she breathed new life into old anti-Semitic tropes, or if it's because he got the orders from APAC, seeing that he's a shill for APAC. Now, he also took shots at Bernie Sanders when it comes to the issue of reparations. Now, I've actually been critical of Bernie Sanders because I don't think Bernie Sanders is up to par when it comes to reparations. Nobody really is, to be clear, but he criticizes Bernie Sanders in a way that is unacceptable in my view because what he's doing is he's trying to say, Bernie, you need to improve, but it's hypocritical because he's not looking in the mirror. He's saying Bernie should support something that he himself doesn't support. I'm not even kidding about this. And he admits this as he criticizes Bernie. What do you mean? Do you think that there should be actual monetary payments to descendants of slaves? Do you support uh, more like what Senator Sanders is talking about, policies such as child care and education that help those who are disadvantaged? Uh, well, you know, what I said was that, um, that I've long believed that uh, this country should address uh, slavery, the original sin of slavery, including by looking at reparations. And if I'm president, then I'm going to appoint a commissioner task force to determine the best way to do that. There's a tremendous amount of disagreement on how we would do that. But let me just say something about Senator Sanders' response there, because um, he was also asked this question in 2016. Mm -hmm. What he said on The View, I think, the other day was that he didn't think the best way to address this was for the United States to write a check. To my mind, that may or may not be the best way to address it. However, it's interesting to me that when it comes to 
uh, Medicare for all, healthcare, you know, the, the response there has been, we need to write a big check that when it comes to uh, tuition-free or debt-free college, the answer has been, we need to write a big check. And so if the issue is compensating the descendants of slaves, I don't think that the argument about um, writing a big check uh, ought to be the argument that you make if you're making an argument that a big check needs to be written hmm. for a whole bunch of other stuff. Interesting. Um, so if under the Constitution we compensate people because we take their property, why wouldn't you compensate people who actually were property? Does Julian Castro have the credibility to actually use this line of attack against Bernie Sanders? Absolutely not. Because let, let's take a moment to really look at his argument. He is essentially saying that there's kind of this double standard with regard to Bernie Sanders and reparations because when it comes to other issues like healthcare and education, he is very idealistic. But when it comes to reparations, then suddenly he's a pragmatist. So what gives? Now, what he is saying essentially is he's basically regurgitating Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument. And I believe that Ta-Nehisi Coates made an argument that is actually persuasive, but Ta-Nehisi Coates can make this argument because he actually does support reparations, whereas Julian Castro supports a task force. Wow, how bold of you. Again, let me be clear here. I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders is above criticism, and we'll talk about this a little bit more towards the end of the video. I do think Bernie Sanders needs to improve when it comes to this issue, but Julian Castro cannot make this argument, at least if he wants to make it from a position of authority, because unless you're going to explicitly support reparations, then you you can't criticize anyone else for this, because it's obvious that what he's doing is he's trying to exploit this issue in order to attack Bernie Sanders in order to propel himself, and it's obvious he just wants to placate individuals who genuinely do support reparations, which I think is actually wrong. I think that if you're not going to support reparations, then just say it. But you can't take whatever milquetoast approach you have and say, oh, well, I support reparations. Let's throw that label on there. You can't do that if you want to come off as a good faith actor. But what he's doing here is he's trying to outflank Bernie on an issue when he, really he doesn't have the credibility to do that. You can't outflank someone if you're not as good on this issue as the person you're criticizing. Now, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that Tulsi Gabbard wanted to outflank Bernie on this issue and say, look, I've co-sponsored H.R. 40. I've taken it a step further than Bernie Sanders because I support the legislation that John Conyers introduced for decades, which would have the U.S. government commission a study on the impact of reparations as well as how logistically it would work, who would qualify, who wouldn't qualify, things that we need to get answers to if we actually do want to move towards a tangible thing for American descendants of slavery. She can say that. Julian Castro cannot, and if Bernie Sanders is genuinely outflanked, then I would have no choice as a supporter of Sanders to concede and say, all right, well, on this issue, even if I support Bernie overall, he's not the best on this issue. You've outflanked him from his left. Kudos to you. But Julian doesn't get to do that. Tulsi could, but Julian cannot. Now, there's other issues. Kirsten Gillibrand, for example, she explicitly said she supports abolishing ICE. Bernie Sanders has not. 
Now, has he made some progress and maybe hinted that he might be open to it? Sure, but he still isn't as good on this particular issue as Kirsten Gillibrand. So in the event, hypothetically, she came out and said, look, what gives, Bernie? I support abolishing ICE, but you don't. I would have no choice as a Sanders supporter but to concede. Now, there's a political strategy that actually is effective in trying to target your opponent's weaknesses. And if somebody is a progressive champion, then sure, what do you do? It makes sense to try to outflank them from the left wherever you can. This is exactly what Hillary Clinton did back in 2016 with regard to gun control. Now, she's arguably better on gun control. I don't necessarily know that that's true. Um, but I mean, she she really exploited that presumed weakness and tried to target Bernie there and outflank him on maybe the only issue that she could. But the difference between Tulsi and Kirsten Gillibrand and Hillary Clinton here doing that and trying to outflank Bernie is that there actually was a case to be made that they outflanked Bernie or that they could outflank Bernie. With Julian Castro, he actually admitted that, well, maybe Bernie Sanders' approach will be, um, you know, the better approach. Now, I'll give him credit in saying that Julian Castro has not ruled out a check, but do I believe that he actually is going to issue a check to American descendants of slavery? No, because he's already showing signs of weakness. It's kind of like Medicare for All. The minute they start to back down and they're no longer unequivocally saying they support Medicare for All, you know that they're not going to deliver Medicare for All. And the same is true here. So what Julian Castro is doing here is hypocritical. He's criticizing someone for not being good enough on an issue that he himself is not good enough on. Now, with that being said, I want to stress here that I'm not against criticisms of candidates who I support. If you're going to be critical of Bernie Sanders here, then I think that that's fine. Bernie Sanders is not above criticism just because I'm supporting him. And I've been critical of Tulsi Gabbard. I'm very critical of Elizabeth Warren. I'm critical of Andrew Yang. And I'm also critical of Bernie Sanders. So addressing the very specific issue of Bernie Sanders and reparations in a vacuum, does he need to improve? Yes, he does need to improve. Putting what Julian Castro said aside, Bernie Sanders himself needs to actually do better on this issue because he is the most popular politician in America and he shifted the Overton window when it comes to issues like Medicare for All and free college. So I have no doubts on my mind that if he came out swinging on reparations, he could unilaterally shift the Overton window to the left, which is why I think that criticisms of Sanders on this issue by good faith actors is actually necessary because he actually has the power and influence to change minds and hearts on this issue, because admittedly, it's not a very popular issue yet. But that's why you make the case. And if we have someone like Bernie Sanders make a moral and a legal case for reparations, I think that that really can, it can do a lot. It can go a long way. So I think that as progressives, we need to not try to be blind here and say, oh, well, just stop talking about this issue. Because, no, I think that we need to improve here. We need to be good allies and listen to American descendants of slavery who are making a very powerful case for reparations. And if you want to hear from them and not a white dude telling you why we should support reparations, then go to ados101.com. But let me just say this. So when it comes to slaves generations ago who were never compensated for their labor, even if they're no longer around, well, I do think you can make the legal and moral argument that their descendants, the descendants of slavery, are still entitled to that legal debt that the United States government owes. We're not saying that white people have to pay black people. We're saying the government 
owes a debt to American descendants of slavery, especially considering that slavery haunts American political institutions to this very day, that black people are still disadvantaged in every conceivable way in comparison with their white counterparts. So if Americans nowadays, if they do a job and they're able to sue for the labor that they weren't paid for and get a cash settlement, why can't American descendants of slaves do the same thing and sue the American government for unpaid labor that even if it was generations ago, they still are entitled to, especially considering that historically this is what we've done. I mean, when you sue someone for wronging you, you get a payment. During World War II, we sent Japanese Americans to internment camps, and then in 1988, Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act into law and compensated them $20,000 each. So, the argument that's being made is that, well, if we've done this before historically, why can't we do this now? Why is it unique that American descendants of slavery, they don't get that, but everyone else does? And there's no answer to that because they deserve reparations. And you have to understand that, of course, it's the case that the establishment is currently weaponizing this issue in order to beat down Bernie Sanders. If you don't recognize that, then you're not politically savvy. But at the same time, Bernie's got to be more savvy. He's got to acknowledge that this is what the establishment is going to do. And he's got to come out ahead of them and say, look, maybe it's been the case that I was wrong on this issue. But I think he's probably going to be defensive on this because the establishment is clearly using this issue and exploiting this issue to beat him down. And individuals like Julian Castro are trying to do that, not necessarily because they genuinely care about reparations, because he hasn't said a thing about reparations until he was asked about it on the route, and he saw how the establishment used him being supposedly for it against Sanders. So now he's just exploiting that perceived weakness in Bernie Sanders. But with that being said, I think that Bernie Sanders should actually consider supporting reparations because if he did, he actually would help, I believe, move the needle when it comes to public opinion on this issue. So is it the case that people like Julian Castro are making this reparations argument specifically to attack Bernie and they're making this in bad faith? Absolutely. You've got to acknowledge that. And this is someone who's a political opportunist who's trying to step on everyone else's head in order to reach the top. But with that being said, criticism is important in order to get candidates to improve. So Bernie Sanders is not above criticism. But getting back to Castro, this is someone who has attacked two progressives in the span of one week, Ilhan Omar and Bernie Sanders, when he would be better served to actually propose something that would excite people rather than trying to attack other individuals. Now, part of the strategy in DC is that if you are not polling very well, which he's not, then the way that you can elevate yourself and get more name recognition is you attack the front runner. That's what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. But here's what I will say to you, Julian Castro. If you care about issues then actually be bold and propose something yourself. If you're going to make reparations your go-to issue, I would love that because I think that this needs to be part of the national conversation, but you don't get to be smug and disingenuous and you're not better. Nobody in this race, with the exception of Tulsi and maybe Marianne Williamson, are actually better on this issue. Nobody but them. CNN hosted a town hall with Tulsi Gabbard over the weekend, and even though I was happy that they gave her this opportunity to kind of get, get her name out there, it was obvious that 
They were no fans of Tulsi Gabbard, and it was as if she walked into a lion's den because she really had no real opportunity to get her ideas out there and talk about policy. She was essentially forced to play defense for probably a majority of this town hall. Now, with that being said, I still do think that she performed well given the circumstances, but I mean, they treated her as if she was a bad person and that that was the default position and she needed to prove to us that she wasn't a bad person. And everything, even positives about her, were spun in a way and framed in a way to try to make her look bad. So an example of that is this question that was asked about her supposedly taking a contradictory stance because, well, if you are anti-interventionist, then how do you reconcile that fact that you were a troop? Literally, somebody asked this question. How can you be both an anti-interventionist and also serve in the military? That was one of the dumbest questions I've ever heard anyone ask at one of these town halls because it was clear that that person was trying to do like a gotcha. And we see this with Bernie Sanders and AOC. People will say, oh, well, you're hypocrites because you ride in cars and airplanes, but yeah, you say that we need to get off fossil fuels. Gotcha. This is kind of what I thought when I saw her ask that question. Oh, you claim to be against regime change, but yet you fought in a war. Gotcha. Um, except if you listen to whatever Tulsi says whenever she talks about this, she says that the reason why she's so vehemently against regime change wars is because she herself fought in one, and it's that experience that changed her mind. So the fact that you would even try to word it in a way, I'm surprised that people aren't freaking out and saying, how could you talk to a troop this way? Because we all know if Dan Crenshaw was asked this question, the establishment would lose their minds. But since it's Tulsi Gabbard, all of a sudden, you know, she's fair game and we can literally criticize her for being a veteran. Unbelievable. So that's just one of the many examples of bias where it was framed in this antagonistic way where the default position is Tulsi bad, prove that you're not bad. Now, additionally, on top of that, there was an individual that asked a question about Assad who didn't disclose, or CNN didn't disclose certainly, that she was a former Obama for America worker. I think that's kind of important because if you're a political operative who worked for an establishment politician and Tulsi is anti-establishment, we might need to know that CNN, so clearly they haven't learned their lesson after seeing all the backlash they got when they planted a bunch of political operatives in Bernie Sanders' audience when they did a town hall with him. Now, another question where she was forced to play defense was on the issue of socialism. Before I give you her answer and how she had to defend herself, look at the way that the question was framed. Right now, the democratic legacy is being warped and repositioned as a socialist agenda. So, Congress, Congresswoman, my question for you is as follows. How will you counter this perception? Because as they say in marketing, perception is reality. Yeah. And in doing so, restore the democratic ideals to their original truths. Yeah. But as you see, so many of these labels are misused, misunderstood to the point so how would you define where people yourself? don't have any idea what they even mean anymore. So you're not a capitalist. I'm, I'm an independent-minded person. I'm a Democrat. And my sole focus and purpose is to figure out how we can best serve the people of this country. So do you see what I mean? Every single question, it doesn't matter whether or not it was applicable to Tulsi or not specifically, was framed in this ruthlessly antagonistic way where she had to prove that she's not a horrible person. And that frustrated me to no end because the bias is overt. 
and CNN didn't really even seem to want to hide it. And when there weren't these overtly biased questions, then they were just fluff questions. Now, look, I've said this once, I'll say it again. I'm not against individuals being critical of candidates, even if I support them. But there's a line between being ruthlessly antagonistic and trying to push a candidate for clarification where there are perceived weaknesses. And I do think that CNN did, in fact, cross that line. With that being said, the entirety of this town hall was not a complete disaster. Because, like I said, I do think that Tulsi Gabbard performed well, given the circumstances. Um, So, for example... Probably my favorite clip of the night and my favorite answer that she gave was in response to a question about rape and sexual assault in the military. I mean, it's clear that she shined here. Take a look. As uh, one woman officer to another, I'd like to know what you would like to do to stop sexual assault in the military. And as commander in chief, will you commit to signing the Military Justice Improvement Act should it come across your desk? Yes. Uh, I led um, the introduction of the Military uh, Justice Improvement Act in the House of Representatives, so absolutely I would sign it into law uh, as your President and Commander-in-Chief. As a fellow service member, um, we have lived through experiences ourselves and things that our fellow brothers and sisters in uniform have gone through. I have uh, sat through hearings and engaged with leaders from the Department of Defense in my role as a member of the Armed Services Committee, where unfortunately um, there is a lack of recognition of the serious change that needs to take place for there to be a true uh, path for justice for victims of sexual assault in the military. I believe that we still today don't know how rampant sexual assault in the military is because there is still a fear of retaliation, there is a stigma, and people who don't want to be known as that one, she or he is that one who went against the team, who turned their back. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And we know people ourselves who have gone through this and felt like they had no place to turn. So this legislation is so important because it provides that path outside of the chain of command where you know that there is no one, whether it's your team leader, or platoon leader, or your first sergeant, or your commander, there is no one who will be able to stop your pursuit of justice and account- accountability if you're a victim of assault in the military. This is such an important issue. Thank you for raising it. It's one that I'm going to continue to fight for. Thank you. Thank you. So that was incredibly touching and incredibly powerful. And what you saw there was a really genuine moment where Tulsi made a direct connection to a member of the audience who asked the question, a really important question. And seeing Tulsi's response there and seeing how well she performed makes me feel even more frustrated about the fact that CNN was out to get Tulsi the entire time. Because had you not been overly antagonistic, you would have potentially given her more opportunities to make those types of direct connections. So it's frustrating. But nonetheless, again, I don't want to make this only about CNN's bias and the antagonistic nature of this town hall because I do think there were other good moments. So for example, she was asked about climate change and for the most part, I think she gave a virtually perfect answer with one exception. Why does this issue not have more political traction and with what urgency will you address it 
if you are elected president. Yeah, thank you. You know, before I ran for Congress, I served on our Honolulu City Council, a district that, that is one of the largest city councils in the country, represented close to 100,000 people. And one of the things that we went through uh, in our deliberations and, and bringing in experts and meeting with planners, city planners, uh, was the impact of climate change on our home as an island state. This wasn't some far off theory or some possibility in the next generation uh, that people might have to face. This was in the next 10, 15, 20 years, how much are the sea levels going to rise that are going to start taking over our communities? And we're seeing this now. Uh, there was just a, a resolution passed in Hawaii calling for an emergency because homes and roads are being eroded uh, because of these rising sea levels in the ocean. Uh, so we know how urgent this is, as do many people in this country. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons we can look to to why Washington hasn't taken this more seriously. And I think one of the big ones is the big influence of money in politics, uh, as well as uh, industries like the fossil fuel industry continue. You have high-powered lobbyists who try to block and get in the way of real legislation being passed. But this is something that will require us as people to stand up and make sure that our voices are heard to the leaders of this country to understand the seriousness um, of this threat and how bold action must be taken to protect us, to protect our home and our planet uh, and our future. Uh, yes, there are things in, that we can do in our everyday lives to try to make this change, but this really needs to happen uh, at the national level, and it needs to happen at the global level. So overall, I really liked what she did there because I think that she essentially played all the greatest hits when it comes to climate change. Not only did she tie it to a real-life issue, such as rising sea levels and how that would impact uh, um, an island state like Hawaii, but she also talked about the reason why there's been inaction. It's largely due to money and politics. She also talked about this not necessarily being an individual issue, but more so an issue where government has to take action and there needs to be global action. And that's what she'd do as president. Now, the reason why I say it was almost perfect, virtually perfect with one exception, is because if you recall, the way that the individual asked her that question was he made urgency a prime concern there. And I think that if she would have addressed the elephant in the room, then it would have been a 10 out of 10. But I give her a 9.5 otherwise. So what's the elephant in the room that I'm talking about? The Green New Deal. And she didn't mention the Green New Deal, namely because even if she says that she supports it, she hasn't co-sponsored it. And part of the reason why she hasn't co-sponsored it is because she does have her own climate change legislation, to be fair. It's called the OFF Act. However, this was written before we knew about the IPCC's 12-year timeline. And what Tulsi's OFF Act aims for is 100% renewable energy by 2035, but that would be too late given what we know now about needing to take drastic action within the next 12 years. So as a presidential candidate, I need you to demonstrate to me that you are able to adapt in the event new scientific data 
comes out. And that's exactly what happened. We had a phenomenal piece of legislation with the OFF Act introduced by Tulsi Gabbard in the last congressional session, but now we need it to be even more ambitious in order to meet the IPCC's 12-year deadline. Now, I get it because you've been pushing for this legislation for more than a year now, and you don't want to just abandon it. But what she should have said was, look, I take a kitchen sink approach to climate change. I support both the OFF Act, which is my legislation, but I also support the Green New Deal because I do think we need to meet the IPCC's 12-year deadline, and the Green New Deal really is the only actual framework for climate change that would address that specific urgency. And I think that that probably could have made her answer better because think about this. When we talk about healthcare, we always have to attach a policy prescription to it. And that policy prescription is obviously Medicare for all. So we should be doing the same thing when it comes to climate change. And I think she needs to come on board with the Green New Deal. I mean, it's been long enough. I get that you say that there's vagueness to it, Tulsi, but co-sponsor it and then try to improve it. Don't sit out and say, well, I have my own legislation. We need you to be able to adapt. So that's where I think she went wrong, but I don't want to shit on her answer too much because overall, she's saying what I need her to say when it comes to climate change. I, I just need that. I just need her rather to acknowledge that there is this 12-year deadline and I am pledging to meet that 12-year deadline. So it was a virtually perfect answer. It would have been much better had she talked about the Green New Deal. So it's kind of getting awkward because she's not addressing the Green New Deal head on. And even if you have your own legislation, you've got to talk about what's popular and what has name recognition, in my opinion. Another thing here, um, the question of Ilhan Omar came up and... Before we get to Tulsi's answer, I just want to give you a look at the way that this this was framed, because you could have guessed it was framed very terribly in a horrible way that both sides is the situation. I'm troubled by the increase in both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism that's infecting discourse on both sides of the political aisle. I do not like that framing, because when you both sides an issue like anti-Semitism, what you're essentially doing, and I don't know anything about this individual who asked that question, but you can assume that if she's saying, oh, well, there's anti-Semitism on the left, well, what's she alluding to? Because there's no real anti-Semitism or hate on the left to the extent that there is on the right, so you can't both sides this, but what is she alluding to? Oh, well, criticisms of Israel is tantamount to anti-Semitism. That's essentially what we're being primed to believe here when she says something like that. Now, this is something that she probably did unwittingly. I don't think that she was trying to come in with this nefarious agenda to get us to think that criticisms of Israel is tantamount to anti-Semitism, but that's essentially what happened. So just understand there that when you frame a question like that, you're reshaping the discussion in a really disingenuous way. Now, Tulsi Gabbard went on to give a response about Ilhan Omar, and then she condemned, you know, hate as a whole. And then she was asked specifically about Ilhan Omar's comments. And this is really, I think, the one instance where I was actually disappointed in Tulsi's response. Ilhan Omar suggested that support for Israel in Congress is, quote, all about the Benjamins, and criticized lawmakers just this past week for supporting Israel as potentially having, quote, allegiance to a foreign country. What do you think about these statements, and do you think this is anti-Semitic? Uh, well, let's look at the bigger issue here. The bigger issue is, uh, there's a couple, actually, of, of making sure that as members of Congress and as people in this country, we can have open dialogue 
about our foreign policy. Um, you know, as, as there are uh, criticisms levied about uh, dual loyalty, again, as I mentioned in the last question, I've been on the, on the receiving end of those types of attacks, so I can understand um, how offensive they can be. Where just because I am a Hindu, people assume that therefore I must be loyal to some other interest or but, some other place. But what, but what about these specific statements? You're talking broadly. These specific statements, were they anti-Semitic? Uh, there are people who have expressed their offense at these statements. I think that what Congresswoman Omar was trying to get at was a deeper issue related to our foreign policy. And I think there's an important discussion that we have to be able to have openly, even though we may end up disagreeing at the end of it, that we've got to be able to have that openness to have the conversation. But you're not willing to go as far what as I'm saying it's anti-Semitic. What I'm saying is what she was trying to bring up was, so, I, was something that was, was a deeper issue. Okay. And I don't believe that, she, that her intent was to, to cause any offense to anyone. That wasn't necessarily the worst defense of Ilhan Omar that I've seen, but was it the best? No, not really. And when she talked about dual loyalty and it being Hindu-phobic to question her ties to Modi, I just don't find this argument persuasive at all because the argument is being made in good faith by progressives who aren't Hindu-phobic, who are questioning why she posed for photo ops with someone who is a Trumpian figure. He's India's version of Donald Trump. So we're not saying, hey, you're both Hindu, there's something fishy going on here. We're saying... Why would you want to pose for photo ops and be associated with someone who is kind of a bad guy? I mean, we grill other presidential candidates for posing for photo ops with war criminals like Benjamin Netanyahu all the time. So why can't we question why Tulsi's choosing to pose for photo ops with a different extremist and war criminal? Do you see what I mean? It's almost like she's invoking Hindu phobia to shut down criticism, which is kind of similar to the way that individuals who don't want you to criticize Israel will invoke anti-Semitism to get you to shut up. And it seems disingenuous to me. And I think that she hasn't heard this argument, which is why she keeps making it. But we're making this argument in good faith. And what it seems like is she's trying to invoke identity politics in order to not really explain why she chose to pose for photo ops with Narendra Modi. Now, I'll ask her about this when she comes on my show. She is still planning to come on my podcast because I do think that it's important for her to explain why she chose to post for photo ops with someone who's an objectively bad person, I think. So, I don't find her argument persuasive here with regard to Hindu phobia. I do think Hindu phobia is something that is problematic in the United States because there's so little visibility for individuals who are Hindu. But in this instance, as a leader, I don't find her argument persuasive. Now, when it comes to what she said about Ilhan Omar, I wasn't super pleased and impressed here because she didn't unequivocally say that what Ilhan Omar did was not anti-Semitic. Um, she claimed that Ilhan probably didn't intend for it to come off that way, but Tulsi still kind of implied that, well, you know, since some people took it that way, then maybe it's a problem. But again, you, you can't take bad faith arguments as evidence that something is or isn't anti-Semitic. Because the same types of bad faith arguments are being made right now about Tulsi Gabbard being an Assad toady. So if we were to say, oh, well, look, some people are saying she is an Assad apologist, so maybe it's true since some people are saying it 
then what we're doing is we're allowing the right and our opponents to frame the discussion when we shouldn't be doing that. We should say, no, it's not anti-Semitic. No, Tulsi's not an Assad apologist. That's completely ridiculous. So that's why I wasn't I wasn't impressed with her um with her response here overall, but I don't want to give you the impression that I wasn't pleased with her performance because what she was working with here was an incredibly antagonistic atmosphere of individuals who were just chomping at the bit to try to put her on defense and trying to, you know, smear her. And clearly, this is CNN trying to curate a specific set of questions that would, in fact, make Tulsi Gabbard look bad because she's someone who the establishment, frankly, just does not like. So overall, given that situation, I do think that she did a phenomenal job, but I do think that CNN largely was holding her back. They kind of clipped her wings and wouldn't allow her to truly fly. And that pissed me off because it's like, if you're going to do these town halls and give each candidate town halls, then why aren't you bringing up the baggage for all of the other candidates? I mean, if you watch the town hall with Pete Booty Judge, no baggage was brought up. It was all just fluff questions. So it's frustrating that they really target Tulsi Gabbard and also Bernie Sanders. They, they take these progressives and they intentionally try to put them on defense and make them look bad in order to elevate the more establishment-friendly candidates. And that was on display here. So Tulsi did phenomenal in spite of what CNN was trying to do, could she personally have done better? Sure, but I mean, she doesn't, she didn't really have to do much to improve. I still think she did phenomenal here, but um, CNN, they're just, they're so biased, and this is why people don't trust them and why they don't have credibility. It's because even when you give a candidate a platform and you are doing something that's seemingly beneficial to them, they're still doing it in an underhanded way to ultimately bring them down. And that is just, it's the definition of bias in media. It's the definition of trying to manufacture consent that the establishment deems appropriate. Tulsi Gabbard was on a recent episode of Late Night with Stephen Colbert. And even though I wasn't really expecting much from Stephen Colbert, I wasn't honestly expecting it to be this bad. I know that over the course of the years, He's become a lot more establishment-friendly. I mean, I was assuming that he would try to grill her about Assad and pretty, pretty much everything that media hacks do, but I wasn't expecting it to be this bad. Now, I can't play the entire clip for you because CBS is really draconian um, with copyright strikes. So if I play the clip, they're going to strike it down. So I'll link you to the video down below in the description box if you want to see it. But I will play you some audio just so you can kind of get a sense of how bad this interview was. And not because of Tulsi, it was exclusively because of Stephen Colbert. And how hacky he's become is honestly, it's, it's shocking to me. I don't know whether America should be the policeman of the world. But it if is we, my opinion that we should not be. If we are not though, nature abhors a vacuum. And if, 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 if we are not involved in international conflicts or trying to quell international conflicts, certainly the Russians and the Chinese will fill that vacuum and we will step away from the world stage in a significant way that might destabilize in the world because the United States, however flawed, is a force for good in the world, in my opinion. Would, would you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. My, my point is that... In order, in order to be a force for good, we must actually do good. 
the consequences of these regime change war policies has been horrible. It has been completely the opposite of that intention, of that good that the United States should be standing for. So I don't advocate for isolationism. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about making sure that we have relationships with other countries that's based on cooperation, not conflict, and that we're thinking through and exercising foresight on the decisions that we're making and understanding what those consequences are. Um, you've gotten some fans uh, in the Trump supporter world. David Duke, Steve Bannon, and uh, Matt uh, Gates. Is that his name, Matt Gates? What, 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 what do you make of, of how much they like you? You, you should ask them. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I have denounced strongly, time and again, the white nationalist views of David Duke and the racist and bigoted views of, of people who are um, fomenting hatred uh, and even violence. Uh, this is unacceptable and something that we should all stand up uh, and condemn. Wow. What he said there, it demonstrated that he's ignorant. And I really, I struggle to call him ignorant because he used to actually be someone who was insightful. He would speak truth to power. He would challenge the status quo. But now, he is espousing talking points that legitimize this idea that the U.S. is an empire that's good. We're a force for good in the world. It's not like we're bullying other countries and we're being an international asshole because, you know, we want resources and international hegemony. We're doing it because we're good. (laughs) Really, Steven? You're going to say this, of all people? It just goes to show you that without Jon Stewart there to influence him, he just, he doesn't know what to do, so he just says what everyone else says. How can you contend that the United States is a force for good when we are currently doing illegal drone strikes in Pakistan, in Yemen, Somalia, and we're literally violating their sovereignty and territorial integrity, and they've told us, we don't want you to do these drone strikes in our backyard. Leave. There have been courts that have ruled that the United States needs to, needs to stop doing this, and we don't listen. Can you imagine if Canada was doing this, and they were doing drone strikes in Texas? There would be outrage. And if we heard a Canadian say, oh, well, we're a force for good, even if we're terrorizing the United States, heads would explode. But because it's us, and since Stephen Colbert is unable to see past his Americanism or Americanist, whatever you want to call it, he just says, well, we're a force for good because that's what I'm told. Maybe try to be a little bit introspective once in a while, Stephen, and understand that the United States, objectively speaking, has not been a force for good in the world. If you pull individuals from around the globe, they're going to say that the number one threat or something along those lines is the United States. Because we are. We're not a force for good. We're an empire that, like other empires previously before us, we're doing a lot of bad things around the world and we're claiming to be the good guys. We're doing it under the guise of spreading democracy and now it's not even like there's a facade anymore i mean you have john bolton straight up saying we want to invade venezuela because we want their oil 
You have a president that said this. And what Tulsi said was important. In order to be a force for good, we must do good. It's as simple as that. You can't say that we're a force for good if we're doing evil everywhere. And that's fine if you want to talk about what other countries are doing, but you can't just look at their actions in a vacuum and suggest, well, you know, if we don't be the world police, then it's going to be Russia or China. You've got to acknowledge that we are not well-liked among people around the world, and for good reason. Like, I struggle to call it ignorant because I feel like he knows better. He's just choosing to be obtuse. He's choosing to do the establishment's bidding, because this is a multi-millionaire who is comfortable, so why turn the apple cart over when you're doing fine yourself, when you have no real reason personally to challenge the status quo? You have nothing to gain and everything to lose, so why criticize it when you're comfortable? That's what we're seeing here. He also asked Tulsi, why do people like David Duke and Steve Bannon and Matt Gates support you? And I think her response was perfect there. You have to ask them. Why is that a gotcha? It doesn't make any sense. And if you'll notice, this is exactly what the establishment used to legitimize their dogpile on Ilhan Omar. Because David Duke said, oh, well, what she said is, is great. And when Donald Trump learned that Bernie Sanders was um, running for president again, and he didn't attack him off the bat and said, I like Bernie. They use that as evidence that, oh, well, you know, see, since these people are praising you in any way, shape, or form, that's evidence that you're bad. No, that's a really hacky argument. These are individuals who reasonable people hear from, and we dismiss what they say, because we don't care what people like David Duke or Steve Bannon have to say, because we don't view them as legitimate. So if David Duke wants to praise Tulsi Gabbard, that means nothing to me. It doesn't affect my perception of Tulsi because everything that David Duke thinks and says out loud is illegitimate. So I'm not just going to say, oh, well, um, since David Duke thinks Tulsi is good, then I have to view her, view her as bad by default because that's a nonsensical argument. It's irrational. If David Duke says that ice cream is delicious, are we supposed to turn on ice cream? I'm not turning on ice cream. So, do you understand why this is so hacky? Stephen Colbert is awful now. And I again, I knew he was bad, but I didn't realize it was this bad. And part of the reason is that I haven't really been watching his show because I just, I have no interest in celebrity gossip and an establishment analysis. But um, I had a friend send me a link to this interview with Tulsi and I just thought, wow, Stephen, what happened to you, dude? You sold out, man. And it's not like he wasn't making cash before, but like I said, this is only a theory. You know, I can only speculate. I think that now that Jon Stewart isn't here to provide his own astute analysis, then Stephen Colbert just kind of defaults to what everyone else is saying and thinking. He is a follower, not a leader like Jon Stewart. And it's sad because comedy in America, in the era of Trump, you have material gifted to you, but yet this is what comedians, for the most part, not every comedian, of course, are resorting to. You, to. They're doing the hackiest establishment bidding. You have Ashton Kutcher tweeting out support for the CIA, drinking a CIA, from a CIA cup. 
I mean, what happened to comedy when it should be thriving in the Donald Trump era? So, I mean, I would encourage you to watch the clip, but you probably already know what to expect. Just that little clip that I showed you is going to give you all you need to know that this was a shit show. But kudos to Tulsi, because even though more so than anyone, she's put up with the hackiest smears. I don't know how she does it, but she keeps her cool every single time. I would be losing it on these people. I would be getting so frustrated because to just have them berate you time after time, I mean, at what point does that wear you down? But it's not getting to Tulsi. And um, kudos to her because she's a she's <laughs> she's a bigger person than I am because I, I wouldn't be able to um, to deal with this and be calm. I would be pissed and I would be expressing that. But, you know, I think she just she's a veteran in in the political sense she knows what she's doing pretty much any article that you read about cnn's town hall with pete Buttigieg will tell you that it was received really well and i think it probably was received really well and i kind of feel like i'm the only one who came away from it liking him less and part of that is because probably nobody really knew who he was but I already was relatively familiar with Pete Buttigieg. Um, and, you know, it's it's very clear that when you listen to him, he's someone who comes across as an individual that knows what they're talking about. He's very um, descriptive and articulate in talking about specific policies that are relatively bold. But at this town hall, I'm basically writing him off. One strike, you're out. Because a couple of weeks ago, I actually gave him credit because he was talking about Medicare for All in a really bold way, saying that, no, this is not a radical idea. The people who are against it are actually radical. And it's because the Overton window has shifted so far to the right that a policy like Medicare for All, it just seems like it's radical. But in actuality, it's not. It's more of a compromise between a private system and a completely socialized system like the UK has. So what he said impressed me and he kind of went on my radar at that point. It seemed like he was going to be someone who was going to try to be progressive. But with that being said, I felt something that I couldn't quantify. I was getting bullshitter vibes from him and I couldn't really articulate why I was getting bullshit vibes from him. It just seemed like he was someone that was trying to placate progressives. But I, you know, I didn't bring this up because, you know, why, why criticize someone if you don't really have evidence to back up your feelings? Because facts over feelings, right? But now it's very clear that I should have trusted my instincts on him because he backtracked on Medicare for All in a really substantial way. And rather than just saying unequivocally, I support Medicare for All, what he advocated for here is basically a public option, making him what now the uh, sixth 2020 candidate who has since endorsed Medicare for All and then walked back that endorsement. This is what he had to say. First of all, we still have uninsured and underinsured people, millions. And it's one of the reasons why we can't be satisfied with where we are. The ACA made a great difference. It made a big difference for members of my own family. But it hasn't gotten us all the way there. And it's vulnerable to being undermined. As a matter of fact, right now, it's under attack by the current administration. That's why I believe we do need to move in the direction of a Medicare for all system. I think anyone in politics who lets the words Medicare for all escape their lips also has a responsibility to explain how we could actually get there. Because as you know, uh, from working on this day in and day out, it's not something you can just flip a switch and do. 
In my view, the best way to do that is through what you might call a Medicare for all who want it setup. In other words, you take some flavor of Medicare, you make it available on the exchange as a kind of public option, and you invite people to buy into it. So I absolutely hated that answer. Because what he's doing is especially disingenuous and nefarious. Because he answers that question, um, starting out saying, quote, we do need to move in the direction of a Medicare for all system. But then what he proceeds to do is advocate for a public option. But what makes it really disgusting is that he's stealing the label Medicare for all in order to get you to think he supports Medicare for all while he tells you about a public option in actuality. Do you see what's happening? So he's trying to gaslight you. He's trying to use the words Medicare for all with the intention of priming you to think that he's in favor of it when in actuality, he's not going to do Medicare for all. He's going to do, in his words, Medicare for all who want it. Which, let me be clear, is not Medicare for all. It's kind of the same thing we're seeing with regard to reparations and how Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Julian Castro are trying to pretend as if they're in favor of reparations by calling what they support reparations. But if you look at the policy, it's not reparations. Same thing's happening here. He's saying he supports Medicare for all, and he's using the words Medicare for all, but it's not Medicare for all. You're gaslighting us, and that is a special level of disgusting because you're essentially trying to dupe us. That's what is happening here. And he also says, when it comes to Medicare for all, quote, it's not something you could just flip a switch and do. In other words, he thinks that you have to have some type of half measure before we get to Medicare for all. But it kind of is something that you can just flip a switch and do. That's what other countries did. There's not a rule codified into law or in the constitution that says well before you get to point c medicare for all you have to do point b you have to you have to do a public option and then graduate there's there's no rule against that you can flip a switch you can pass medicare for all and then have medicare for all you don't have to go towards a public option first do you understand but that's what he wants you to think because he doesn't support Medicare for all. And the reason why he's being very clear in advocating for a public option and not Medicare for all is because he doesn't want to piss off private insurers who might be inclined to donate to him. And I'm saying this because he kind of said the same thing about Wall Street money. He said, you know, I'm not going to not take Wall Street money, but I don't think that they're going to want to give me money. So he's not going to close off the possibility of taking Wall Street money. It's just that he is, you know, he's not going to ask for it. But if it comes, okay, cool. That's a win-win. And the same is probably true about Medicare for all. So not a good answer. And strike one, you're out, buddy. Sorry, you are now officially off my radar because... The way that I viewed him was kind of as an establishment individual, but out of all the establishment figures, the Kamala Harris's, the Kirsten Gillibrand's, the Cory Booker's, he was probably the best out of the establishment candidates with one foot in the progressive field and another foot in the establishment field. Right here, he just, he straight up flipped on this. And now after watching the entirety of his town hall, 
I am getting strong Obama vibes from Pete Booty Judge, and I think that it's evident this guy's a bullshitter. He is, um, he's gay Obama. He's super rehearsed. He's now used the same scripted lines multiple times. The, well, in 2054, I'll be the current age of the current president, God willing. Okay, dude, you've said that time and again, but now, you know, we're on to the fact that it's scripted. So, I mean, now is the time to sell your stock in Pete Booty Judge. This dude is not the real deal. He's not progressive. He's no Andrew Yang. He's not bringing anything unique. He's just another establishment figure. And even if he is an articulate and polished politician, I have no interest in supporting another establishment shill who's going to get in office, promise us a lot of bold things, and then just maintain the status quo. That's not acceptable. I'll pass on that. But when it comes to Medicare for All, that wasn't the only area where I was disappointed in Pete Buttigieg, because he also had a pretty disappointing response to Venezuela because even though he explicitly stated that he's against regime change, which is good, well, he didn't rule out non-militaristic intervention, meaning he's pro-meddling, which means he's inadvertently pro-regime change, albeit in a roundabout way. So he's not going to support a coup of Venezuela militarily, but if he can do sanctions or something like that to overthrow Maduro, he's in favor of it. Well, you're, you're, you're still meddling. And that's not acceptable. So I didn't like that answer. And he also, he cited universal basic income when talking about automation, but wouldn't commit to supporting it. Well, there's already a lane in this race for Andrew Yang, who's supporting unequivocally and proudly and boldly universal basic income. So I don't understand what place Pete Buttigieg has in this field. I don't get it because he's not offering anything different or unique. And it's not just that I was unimpressed with his performance. I was also unimpressed with the questions that were asked. Because, I mean, it's clear that unlike the Tulsi Town Hall, CNN wasn't out to get him. And as a result, you had fluff questions like this. What advantages does your age grant you to being the next president? And what limitations does it offer? And how will you overcome those? Who gives a shit? Jesus, you, you have the chance to ask a presidential candidate a question about any policy, and you ask him about age. I mean, Jesus Christ, this is why nobody takes the mainstream media seriously, because CNN curates these questions, but they let this one through. Let's throw him a softball. I mean, Jesus, who, who cares about that? Who listened to that guy ask a question and thought, that's exactly what I wanted to know. I don't give a shit about that. Ask him about the fucking policies. He's going to be president or he's running to be president. So ask him about the policies. Jesus Christ, people, what is wrong with you? But <laughs> to be fair, to kind of take a moment to stop and try to be fair. The entirety of this town hall was not a disappointment. This was my favorite moment where he talked about the Supreme Court and a potential court packing plan. Here's what he had to say. Eliminating or whatever you want to do with the Electoral College, it's not the only radical change you're proposing because you've also suggested that the U.S. Supreme Court go from nine justices to 15 to, quote, take the politics out of it a little. Yeah. But how would a liberal president adding six justices to a conservative court take the politics out of it a little? Sure. So what we need to do is stop the Supreme Court from sliding toward being viewed as a nakedly political institution. And I'm for us contemplating whatever policy options will allow that to be possible. 
One of them involves having 15 instead of nine justices, but I'm not just talking about, uh, suppose I get elected as president, putting on six justices I think agree with me, and then daring the next president, who might be conservative, to throw on a couple more. I mean, that's the last thing we want to do. What we need to do is stop every vacancy from becoming this apocalyptic ideological battle that harms the court and the country. The proposal that I've mentioned, that I think is one of many we should probably consider, it does expand the court to 15, but it changes the structure a little bit. Only 10 of them are politically appointed by Democratic or Republican presidents. The other five can only be seated by unanimous consent of the remaining 10. So the idea is that those five, by necessity, will be those who command the respect of the other 10 across the ideological spectrum and can be counted on to think for themselves. Again, I don't know that that's necessarily the right option. There are others that have been floated that would involve for example, a rotation of people up from the appellate bench. And by the way, I know you used the word radical in the question, but there's, uh, there are some legal scholars who think this could be done just by statute, not with a change to the US Constitution. So I think that uh, you know, whichever particular mechanism is best, the point is we need to begin the debate on what it will take to make sure our Supreme Court is less political. And I don't think there's anything about this approach that's any more radical than the shattering of norms that Senate Republicans have gone through in order to get the court to where it is today. That, in my view, was actually a good answer. I liked what he said about the Electoral College, and I like that he has a court-packing plan that would essentially depoliticize the Supreme Court. I like that. So, if he's going to stand out and set, you know, um, kind of stand out of a field that has like a thousand candidates running for president, that's kind of his lane, and that's the only lane I can see, because everyone else kind of already carved out a lane. You have Kamala Harris, who's the establishment favorite. You have Bernie Sanders, who's the progressive favorite. You have Joe Biden, who... You have Tulsi Gabbard, who is the pro-peace candidate. You have Amy Klobuchar, who's running as the moderate. You have Andrew Yang, who's running on universal basic income. So if Pete Buttigieg is going to differentiate himself from the other candidates, I think this could be the field uh, that he should take. But with that being said, overall... He backtracked on Medicare for All, and he's been in the race now for like a month or so. So, um, yeah, not impressed at all. I think that he's someone who's a good speaker, and he is articulate in describing policies, but he's just not bold enough. He really is doing nothing unique to set himself apart from everyone else. Um, and I'm sure he's a lovely person. You know, it's it's nice to see a gay candidate run for president. I think that as a member of the LGBTQ community myself, it's refreshing to see that. It's nice to have that representation. But with that being said, if you're not going to be bold and progressive, then um, you're out. If you don't support Medicare for all, then you can't just claim you support Medicare for all by labeling your non-Medicare for all policy Medicare for all in order for you to pass that litmus test and then go on and not give us what you essentially promised. That's gaslighting. That's disingenuous. So if you don't support Medicare for all, then say you support a public option. You don't get to say, I support Medicare for all for anyone who wants it. No, that's bullshit. That is gaslighting. So that's what makes me especially mad. And even if you watch the John Delaney town hall, even he who does not support Medicare for all claimed that healthcare is a right. So what we're seeing is establishment politicians basically steal and plagiarize the rhetoric that progressives use in order to placate the left. Not going to work. We see what you're doing and um, you're going to have to do better because if you don't support Medicare for all, you're not going to get the support from the base. Sorry, it's as simple as that. Elizabeth Warren recently proposed a new policy idea that I hadn't previously even thought about really, but once she explained it, 
I was 100% on board. So she's going to make the pitch in this clip that I'm going to show you for breaking up giant tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. So this is what she wants to do. And then when we come back from watching her explain the policy implications of what she wants to do, then we're going to talk about the aftermath, which in my view is a really fascinating element of this story because they essentially make her case for her. These giant tech companies have so much power, so much economic power and so much political power that they go all around the country saying, bribe me to come be where you are. And it's like a giant Hunger Games of some kind. What I believe is that to have more competition in the marketplace and to level the playing field a little bit for small businesses and entrepreneurs and startups, what we've got to do is take those platforms, you know how you order on Amazon or you do a search on Google, and break them off from the additional businesses that they're running. And those additional businesses are where they're getting a comparative advantage on their um, information because of the information they get from their platforms. The way to think about this right now is Amazon is like the umpire in the baseball game. It runs the marketplace. And it also has a lot of teams on the field because it's actually competing with the other businesses on that platform and giving special advantage, putting them on page one and somebody they don't like back on page six. So my notion is you can be an umpire or you can own a team, but you can't do both at the same time. And that's how we should break up Amazon. It's how we should break up Google. So I think this is absolutely a phenomenal idea, but I do want to be clear. I don't think she's talking about just taking Facebook itself and dividing it into different companies. I think what she's saying is she wants to break them up in the sense that they're no longer going to be allowed to acquire and own competitors. So for example, Facebook would no longer be allowed to own Instagram. That would have to be um, a different owner. So that's essentially what she's talking about. And I like it. One thing that I will add is that I would also hope that whatever proposal this turns out to be, it also includes regulating them and characterizing these types of tech companies as public utilities. And you can regulate them under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. This is how we regulate the internet as a whole, and it's how we got to net neutrality before Ajit Pai repealed it in 2017. But it's a good way to acknowledge the reality of the fact that these are no longer just social media websites. It's no longer just about us sharing pictures of our food and our cats and talking to our aunts and uncles. This is now something that facilitates democracy. It's, it's an important part of democracy in the sense that it helps us acquire new information. It helps us learn things about candidates before going into the voting booth. So they've taken on a new sort of significance. And I do think that we need to regulate these tech companies as they should be regulated as public utilities, because that's essentially what they are now. And when you actually do become something that is crucial to democracy, like Google, we search for candidates and learn things about them, then you can affect democracy in a really negative way if you have too much power. And what Elizabeth Warren wants to do here is kind of rein them in. But after she talked about breaking up Facebook, what they did in response was they retaliated. They actually took her 2020 presidential ads 
and stopped running them. They censored her, literally. So as Cristiano Lima of Politico reports, Facebook removed several ads placed by Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign that called for the breakup of Facebook and other tech giants. The ads, which had identical images and text, touted Warren's recently announced plan to unwind anti-competitive tech mergers, including Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram. Now, I think it's obvious to everyone that they removed her ad because she talked about breaking them up and financially, obviously, <laughs> they don't want that to happen, right? But they're not going to come out and say, we tried to censor Elizabeth Warren because she said something that we don't like. They're going to give some type of bullshit excuse as to why they did it. This is their excuse. Quote, we removed the ads because they violated our policies against use of our corporate logo, the spokesperson said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not buying it. It's evident that they removed her ad because they didn't like what she was saying. And what they're doing is demonstrating why they need to be regulated as public utilities and broken up. Because if you are so big, then you're not just a widely used social media app. You acquire power with growth and now you threaten democracy. So if a presidential candidate says something that you don't like, now you can unilaterally silence them. And it's not just about this issue. It's not just that Elizabeth Warren can say we should break up Facebook and then be censored because of that. If they're censoring her over this, they can censor anyone over anything. And there's essentially no recourse because there's little to no oversight over these tech giants, they're not democratically elected. We have no say. So something that's so crucial now to democracy is going to need to be looked at in a more thorough way. We're going to have to grapple with the fact that these aren't just tech companies that are private companies. They play a role in democracy and we need to treat them as such because if they misuse the power they have, they can harm the country in potentially the world, in a really substantial way. So after they received backlash for censoring Elizabeth Warren effectively, they started to walk back those claims and said, look, we're going to restore the ads. Now that you noticed, they didn't say that, but that's what they're doing. They're restoring the ads because we all noticed. And they said that they're restoring the ads in the interest of, quote, robust debate. <laughs> in other words... You got caught censoring someone who said something you didn't like, and now you're doing a 180. And you're also proving her right in the process. I don't know if they realize that, but that's exactly what they're doing. But Elizabeth Warren realizes this, and she went on Twitter and did a victory lap, saying, curious why I think Facebook has too much power. Let's start with their ability to shut down a debate over whether Facebook has too much power. Thanks for restoring my posts, but I want a social media marketplace that isn't dominated by a single censor. Hashtag break up big tech. And after she tweeted this, Tulsi Gabbard responded saying that not only is she on board with this policy, but she also will be introducing legislation in the House of Representatives to do exactly what Elizabeth Warren wants to do. So, simply put, they have too much power. When you become so large that you have the power to unilaterally censor political opponents, you have too much power. And the government needs to regulate you as the public utility that you are.
And look, it's not just Facebook. You don't really have to go far to see how these social media giants and tech giants can basically choose winners or losers based on who they do or don't like. So if you go to YouTube's trending page and look at the news section, these are supposedly the videos that are trending and gaining traction across the entire site. I mean, these are videos that are not popular. They have hundreds of views, if even, and they really struggle to cross the thousand view threshold. Whereas if you look at my videos, all of them have more than a thousand views and even my lowest viewed video has more views than one of the higher viewed videos on YouTube's trending page. But you'll never see my videos on the trending page. You'll never see a secular talk or a rational national or a Young Turks or a Kim Iverson video on YouTube's trending page because YouTube can unilaterally choose winners and losers. And they've chosen mainstream media outlets like CBS News to be winners and they've chosen to suppress independent media voices. Even though we've proven that we are legitimate sources, we're good faith actors, we're not trying to peddle conspiracy theories, well, they still don't view us as legitimate. So they're choosing to pretend as if these videos with 30 views from the Sacramento Bee are trending across a website that has millions upon millions of views possibly billions every single day, but our videos aren't good enough. So that's what they're doing. They're choosing winners and losers, and they're not providing you with all access to information. They are trying to curate information that they think you need to see. So this is why these tech giants have got to be regulated as public utilities. Now, after Elizabeth Warren talked about this and Politico published a pretty good report on this, they then turned around and published a hatchet job claiming that she's hypocritical because she supposedly talked about breaking up these big tech companies, but then took money from the likes of Amazon, Google, and Facebook employees. But these are individual donors. These are the employees of Amazon. They're not donating to Elizabeth Warren because they want Amazon and Jeff Bezos to have more influence. They're probably donating to Elizabeth Warren because they're a minimum wage worker at Amazon, and they actually want her to have more regulatory oversight and want the government to have more regulatory oversight over their employer. So it's nothing more than a hatchet job and a hit piece and it shows the pushback that she's already getting because what she said here, it struck a chord. It struck a chord. She essentially poked a bee's nest and now we're seeing the ramifications of it. And in doing so, in seeing this pushback and this reaction, it's proving exactly why she's right and why these big tech companies do need to be broken up. So that article by Politico isn't a gotcha. It says more about Politico and how bad journalism is in the United States and how they're going to do everything, including smear, arbitrarily so, in a really disingenuous way, to protect the status quo. That may be the political status quo or the tech status quo, but they're going to protect the status quo no matter what. And it's all the more reason to push even harder now. So kudos to Elizabeth Warren. She's been disappointing me a lot lately, but here I'm with her 100%. I think she's doing something that is great and talking about something that we all need to be grappling with currently. Remember the good old days when Beto O'Rourke was saying things like this? Um, that I'm not looking at 2020 and, and in fact, I'm, I'm completely 
ruling that out. Um, not going to do that. Uh, no matter what, win or lose, you're not going to run. In win 2020. or lose, I, I'm not. I'm not running in in 2020. Um, I, I got to tell you, it, it's it, it's incredibly flattering that anyone would ask me the question, or that that that's even. Um, up for discussion, but but since people have asked, the answer is no. Fast forward to today, and he's running. It's official, and he announced today that he's running on the bold platform of being against bad things and being for good things. Take a look. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America. This is a defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. The challenges that we face right now, the interconnected crises in our economy, our democracy, and our climate have never been greater. And they will either consume us or they will afford us the greatest opportunity to unleash the genius of the United States of America. In other words, this moment of peril produces perhaps the greatest moment of promise for this country and for everyone inside of it. We can begin by fixing our democracy and ensuring that our government works for everyone and not just for corporations. We can invest in the dignity of those who work and those who seek to work. We can ensure that every single American can see a doctor and be well enough to live to their full potential. And all of us, wherever you live, can acknowledge that if immigration is a problem, it's the best possible problem for this country to have. And we should ensure that there are lawful paths to work, to be with family, and to flee persecution. We can listen to and lift up rural America. We can work on real justice reform and confront the hard truths of slavery and segregation and suppression in these United States of America. We can reassert our global leadership and end these decades-long wars and be there for every woman and man who has served in them. And perhaps most importantly of all, because our very existence depends on it, we can unleash the ingenuity and creativity of millions of Americans who want to ensure that we squarely confront the challenge of climate change before it's too late. This is going to be a positive campaign that seeks to bring out the very best from every single one of us, that seeks to unite a very divided country. All right, so he vaguely touched on some issues, but he didn't really list any specific policy positions that he's fighting for. So let's just go to his website and see what he stands for. Oh, okay, so it doesn't look like he has a platform up on his website yet. There is merchandise available, but no policy specifics. And this is fine because campaigns usually, even if they don't put up their official platform yet, they usually will communicate key issues that they're fighting for to Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. He's been tracking all of their policy positions whenever a candidate launches. So let's go ahead and check Jeff Stein's Twitter account. And oh, look at that. He also has not gotten back to Jeff Stein about his specific policy positions. Okay, so I'll admit that this is definitely a little bit weird that he's not coming out swinging with specific policies out of the gate, but I mean, he does have a rally that he attended, his first post-announcement rally in Iowa, so I'm sure that he's going to lay out some really specific plans for policies that he plans to implement, right? But these challenges, I'm absolutely convinced will bring out the absolute best in every single one of us. And we have something that almost no other country in the world has. We have the single greatest mechanism to call forth the genius of our fellow human beings. This democracy, 
more than 320 million people strong, can bring the ingenuity, the creativity, the resolve of an entire country. And each one of these challenges can and will be met. But the foundational challenge to get all of this done is to fix our democracy. Only when it works, and only when each one of us can work within it, will we be able to meet these threats. And so this setting right now, the very first event of our campaign for president, is an example not only of the way that I wish to campaign across this country for every single American, and I could care less your party persuasion, your religion, anything other than the fact that right now we are all Americans and we are all human beings and we do everything within our power for one another, for this great country, yeah. and for every generation that follows. I don't think he's going to talk about policy. All we got there was nothing but vague platitudes. And again, to be fair, going back to the first video, he vaguely touched on certain issues, but he didn't propose policy solutions. Now, if you're running for president, something that is incredibly tiring, wouldn't you do it because you feel compelled out of a duty to your country to want to run on policies that could help Americans? Well, no, because nine times out of ten, these politicians are running not because they care about Americans, but because they care about themselves. And he kind of indicated that this was the case in an interview with Vanity Fair, where he said, man, I'm just born to be in it. So obviously, he isn't running because he feels compelled to fight for a specific policy that would help Americans. He's running because he wants to be loved. He wants the admiration. He wants to be a celebrity. And the problem with Beto O'Rourke is that he's trying to rehash the hope and change era in 2019 and 2020 when he's just not reading the room right because the last time someone ran on hope and change they got in and admitted that they were governing like a moderate republican and Beto O'Rourke would unquestionably be just like that because not only did he break his fossil fuel pledge but as Vox explains here he is substantially more conservative than an already centrist democratic party and you can talk about hope and change all you want and try to be as positive as you want but you need to understand that that's not where Americans are at now. We tried hope and change. That was a failure. Because the person who was telling us hope and change did not deliver any change in a meaningful way to the status quo when that's what he promised. So right now, we're not in a hope and change mood as Americans, Beto. We are in a pitchforks and eat the rich and burn shit down mode because that's how we're feeling. People are desperate. Americans across the country are being radicalized. Working class Americans flipped and voted for Trump after voting for Obama in 2016. This is not the time for hope and change. And if you think that that's going to inspire people, it may dupe some over. But I think that for the most part, Americans have woken up to the fact that this hope and change nonsense that politicians are talking about is nothing more than a ploy to seem inspirational and really set themselves apart from Donald Trump, when in actuality, they're going to get in and do largely the same shit as Donald Trump is doing. And I want to show an analysis on MSNBC that was actually really savvy and astute, where they talk about the problem with this rhetoric now. Beto only wants to be positive. 
He doesn't like being negative. He doesn't like naming villains. He doesn't like being against anything. It's all about what you're for. And so I think the question hovering over Beto is, can he actually deliver against those issues if he wants to be just relentlessly positive? When you have a problem of foxes eating hens, kumbaya is a recipe for slaughter. And so I think he needs to, to figure out how he can have that uplifting message that he's committed to while actually having a theory of the case of what's going on in American life uh, and who he needs to actually dislodge if he's going to help people on, on the questions he cares about. And that is exactly it. The hope and change era is dead and gone. And if you think that that's what's going to propel you and not specific policies, very specific policies, then... Um, I just, I don't know why you're running because if you're going to be in the race, you've got to bring at least something to the table. You don't have to pick everything, but you've got to pick at least maybe one policy. We want more, obviously, but what's going to be your signature policy? Out of the gate, he's not running on that. He's just saying we have ingenuity and creativity and we can, we can do great things and I'm positive. I'm not here for that right now, Beto. So propose policies, talk policy substance, or don't talk at all because you're effectively not saying anything. You're saying a lot of words and there's a lot of noise coming out of your mouth, but you're still not saying anything meaningful that is appealing to normal Americans. In 2020, make no mistake about it, Medicare for all is a litmus test. And if the candidates don't endorse Medicare for all unequivocally, then they're going to have a hard time winning over the left. Now, a lot of candidates are at least savvy enough to know that they've got to talk Medicare for all if they want to appeal to the base. Because now we're at a time when 70% of Americans support Medicare for all, and that includes a majority of Republicans. So even if they don't support Medicare for all, they're going to try to convince us that they do. So for example, Pete Buttigieg, he doesn't support Medicare for all. He made this very clear at the CNN town hall with him. So he's calling his public option Medicare for all who want it. So do you see what's happening? They know they've got to convince us that they support Medicare for all. But up until this point, as far as I know, there's been three candidates who have not backtracked on Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and Andrew Yang. Even Elizabeth Warren has started to walk away from her Medicare for all proposal and has signaled to us that she's willing to compromise. Unacceptable. Now, Beto O'Rourke is someone who, all throughout his Senate campaign back in 2018, he wouldn't endorse Medicare for all. Kyle Kulinski, one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, has explained that he was actually in talks to become a Justice Democrat, but one of the key issues that was keeping him from joining was his unwillingness to support Medicare for all. Now, he has an excuse that he's long maintained that, well, look, I never co-sponsored H.R. 676, which was John Conyers' Medicare for All bill, because I just don't like some of the provisions. But if I'm elected as a senator, I would support Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Now, why is that not persuasive? Because these bills aren't really that different. The difference between John Conyers' bill and Bernie Sanders' bill is that Bernie Sanders' bill is actually a little bit weaker. It doesn't have long-term care, although he did admit recently that he's willing to add that. It's a more gradual rollout over the course of four years, although Bernie Sanders, um, I believe, wants his bill to match Pramila Jayapal's bill now, which is a two-year rollout. So, I mean, the point is that if you're saying that you're unwilling to support H.R. 676, but you're willing to support Bernie Sanders' bill in the event he was elected. 
that tells me you're a bullshitter because the differences are not that substantial to where you would just not support HR 676. So it tells me that he doesn't want to support Medicare for all. But now that he's running, this question is going to come up again. And he was asked what he thinks about Medicare for all. And he failed miserably on this because he indicated that he does not support Medicare for all. And yet again, he is refusing to commit to supporting Medicare for all. And what he says is absurd here. Medicare for all is championed by some of your new competitors. Right. And you get asked about it, how quickly are you going to promise voters that you get there? I think we have to begin with, with a goal that has to be separate from, from any labels. And that goal has to be that every single one of us can see a doctor, take our child to a therapist, afford our prescriptions, to be well enough to live to our full potential, to get that education, uh, to work that job, start that business, um, write that poem, run for that office. Um, that that will, will truly allow this country to thrive. And so the quickest way to get there in my mind is to ensure that we protect the safeguards that we already have, uh, to bring as many people in as quickly as possible into guaranteed healthcare, uh, expansion of Medicaid in those states that haven't done it, allow people to buy in to Medicare who are not already covered by employer insurance. and ensure that there is an effective guarantee so that even if you have insurance but are unable to afford the copay we just met a woman in Keokuk who says her daughter's copay on her medication is 444 dollars after insurance kicks in that we guarantee you that you're going to get the care or the medication in this case that you need um, so my goal is to do that as quickly as possible i'm convinced that we will have to work from uh, as much common ground as possible. No, no one person and perhaps no one party can force the decision on this. this. This has to be something that America comes together on. And I think you do that by, by listening to people, uh, by listening to patients and doctors and healthcare advocates and communities. Um, and, and from that, you get to the solution. So I'm very, very excited that it is such a dominant part of, of just about every candidate's proposal to do better for this country. I think it's a good sign that we will get there, um, but we have to make sure that we include every single person we can in the solution for this. So the first thing he gets wrong is he says, quote, I think we have to begin with a goal that has to be separate from any labels. Wrong. Because if you are trying to get a policy through, then why wouldn't you prop up a policy that one, has name recognition, Medicare for all, and two, has the overwhelming majority of Americans support it. Why would you try to go for something else? That's one of the biggest red flags. He also says the quickest way to get there, meaning Medicare for all, in my mind, is to ensure we protect the safeguards that we already have. In other words, Look, if we want to get to Medicare for all, what we, f what we first have to do is protect the ACA, expand Medicaid. Well, it's funny because I thought that the quickest way to get to Medicare for all was to just pass a fucking Medicare for all bill. But what he's saying is, no, we actually have to do what isn't the quickest way and that'll be the quickest way. I mean, it makes no sense. The opposite is true. So is it clear to you yet that what he's doing is he's bullshitting? He's trying to do this tap dance around Medicare for all and pretend as if he supports it, but really 
He's telling you, I don't support Medicare for all in a roundabout way. He's functionally against it, and he's only for maintaining the status quo, Obamacare. Now, here's what he also gets wrong. Quote, I'm convinced we'll have to work from as much common ground as possible. No one person, perhaps no one party, can force the decision on us. This is one of the weakest responses yet. Because think about this. What did Republicans do when Obama introduced Romney Care? A right-wing healthcare reform policy that was cooked up by the right-wing think tank, the Heritage Foundation. What did they do? They didn't support you. Obama took this approach. Obama tried to reach across the aisle and they slapped his hand down. But now, after seeing what played out during the healthcare debates of 2009 and 2010, you are still delusional enough to say, oh, well, we need to find common ground. Hey, Beto, guess what? Regardless of how much you try to shove hope and change down our throats, Republicans aren't buying it. They're not working with you. So if you want to get any reforms through, including their own policies, they're by default going to be against that. So what you have to do is beat them. You're not going to find common ground here. They're about rolling back what we've managed to accomplish with the Affordable Care Act. In fact, Trump's administration currently is suing to undo protections for pre-existing conditions. So the fact that you even are floating this idea of common ground on this issue, I mean, it, it, it honestly is borderline delusional, but we all know that Beto O'Rourke is not delusional. He's a very intelligent individual, but what he's doing is gaslighting you. This is a bullshitter who wants you to think, I support Medicare for all. I'm going to tell you I support it, but you know, there's a number of ways that we can get there. First, we have to start by protecting the Affordable Care Act and doing this and doing that. No, the fastest way to get there, you just codify that bill into law, pass it through the House, the Senate, and then you sign it into law. Really not that difficult. There's no stepping stones that you're required to go to first in order to secure Medicare for all. You could just pass it and then it's passed. It's codified into law. So, I mean, he's a bullshitter. And yet he's trying to say, well, you know, we can't force this. We've got to have bipartisanship here. Unbelievably delusional there. So understand what Beto O'Rourke is. He is white Obama. He's white Obama. He's going to try to do what Obama tried and failed at doing, which is re reaching a consensus. And then for the next four to eight years, if he were president, people are going to get increasingly more desperate. And then we're going to elect an even bigger monster in 2028 or 2024 on the right. Because every time Americans get desperate, and it's not just Americans, it's people around the world. Whenever they get desperate, they opt for a radical who can capitalize and exploit their feelings of desperation. How do you think Jair Bolsonaro got elected in Brazil? How do you think Marie Le Pen almost got elected multiple times now? She made it to the runoff on two different elections. How do you think she got that far? It's because people are desperate. And when they are desperate, they are susceptible to radicalization. And a lot of times, people who wouldn't otherwise feel inclined to agree with the policy positions of a right-wing proto-fascist, well, maybe they'll choose to overlook some of the really damaging ideologies that they're espousing in order to get some economic relief. So that's what we can expect if Beto O'Rourke was elected. So um, I don't know how far he's going to go in this race, but he really 
what he brings to the table is vague platitudes. He's not offering anything specific, and he's trying to talk about reaching across the aisle at a time when you're trying to work with a party who is insane. Republicans are essentially a psychopathic death cult, and you're trying to work with them? I mean, this guy doesn't know what he's in for. They're going to eat you alive, Beto, if you try to work with them. So you have to defeat them and pass policies in spite of them, not try to bring them to the table because they wouldn't do the same with you. Look at the tax bill. So, um, yeah, needless to say, he doesn't support Medicare for All, and a lot of candidates will be using the words Medicare for All and getting to Medicare for All, but listen very carefully when they say things like this, because what they're effectively telling you is, I don't support Medicare for All, but I really hope that you think I do so I can pass your litmus test. Vice President Joe Biden is gearing up for a 2020 presidential run, and the more he speaks, the more it becomes evident to me that he is incapable of saying something that doesn't just straight up piss off the left, because he always is trying to praise Republicans and pretend as if, you know, it's it's reasonable and pragmatic to reach across the aisle at a time when the Republican Party is downright insane, they're borderline proto-fascist, they're evangelical extremists, and you shouldn't be trying to reach across the aisle. You should be trying to defeat them, and you should try to educate the American people about the threat that they pose not just to America, but to the world. So he's always trying to praise them, and if you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, he called Vice President Mike Pence a decent guy. The fact of the matter is, it was followed on by a guy who's a decent guy our vice president. Now, I don't have to tell you why saying that Mike Pence is a decent guy is problematic because Cynthia Nixon on Twitter actually said it for me. She said, Joe Biden, you've just called America's most anti-LGBT elected leader a decent guy. Please consider how this falls on the ears of our community. Now, to his credit, he then responded to Cynthia Nixon saying, You're right, Cynthia. I was making a point in a foreign policy context that under normal circumstances, a vice president wouldn't be given a silent reaction on the world stage. But there is nothing decent about being anti-LGBTQ rights, and that includes the vice president. Now, Cynthia followed up saying, Thanks, Joe Biden. Appreciate the response. But please understand from where we sit, his dehumanizing of our community disqualifies Mike Pence for the honorific of decent regardless of the context. And she is a thousand percent right. Mike Pence is someone who supports businesses openly discriminating against members of the LGBTQ community simply because they're different. Well, you know, I may offer wedding cakes to heterosexual couples, but if a gay couple wants a wedding cake, I can't do that for them. I'm going to deny them that service because my religion permits me to discriminate against anyone I see fit. And Mike Pence is okay with that. As the governor of Indiana, he signed a bill into law that allows businesses to openly and explicitly discriminate against members of the LGBTQ community. So this man is nothing more than a bigot who was carried to the White House by an imbecile. So for you to call him decent and claim to be on the left, I find that insulting because what you're doing, Joe, is you are erasing 
all the harm that he has done to members of the LGBTQ community. So to his credit, he did kind of walk back that claim and he tried to say, well, you know, I was talking about him being decent in a different context. It was a foreign policy context, but I'm sorry, even in that context, he's still not a decent guy. They're giving bombs to Saudi Arabia currently that they're dropping on school buses in Yemen. So in no context is Mike Pence a decent guy. He is an extremist, fundamentalist, proto-fascist who we should be fighting at all costs. So, I mean, that was the end of the exchange. Cynthia Nixon called him out. He responded. And that was that, right? Well, actually, a couple of days ago, he spoke at a different event and he kind of passive-aggressively attacked individuals who criticized him for praising Republicans. Mean pettiness has overtaken our politics. Sometimes it seems like we can't govern ourselves or even talk to one another. If you notice, I get criticized for saying anything nice about a Republican. Folks, that's not who we are. That's not how we got here. We have to remember what it is that makes this nation so special. It's our core values. It's what we believe. It sounds corny, but it's the American creed. I mean, for real. We hold these truths self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We've never met the standard. Hey, moron, we criticized you because you praised someone who doesn't feel that all men and women are created equal. So don't give me that bullshit. Don't give me those platitudes. You just don't like that we called you out on your bullshit because you were praising someone you were supposed to be opposing. So I don't necessarily know if we want to be overly charitable because he's praised other Republicans and got heat for it. Maybe he wasn't necessarily only talking about, you know, what Cynthia Nixon said. Maybe he was talking about the people who were calling him out in November for basically endorsing a Republican over a Democrat during the midterm election. I'm not sure what the context is, but certainly we can group. It's reasonable to group Cynthia Nixon's criticism there. And this is him essentially responding to Cynthia Nixon. Oh, come on, this isn't who we are. So this is the type of ally we can expect if you're a member of the LGBTQ community. Joe Biden essentially downplaying our concerns with him praising someone who is vehemently homophobic. And there's a lot of other news coming out lately about Joe Biden that he's going to have to answer for extremely racist comments about busing, about segregation. He treated Anita Hill like dirt. He could have tried to rein in some of the comments against her, but he didn't. He's going to have to explain why he's a fucking creep and puts his hands on women who are clearly repulsed by him. There's a lot that he's going to have to answer for, but I think for the people who are worried because he's currently polling higher than Bernie, I don't know who said this, so I can't give them credit for it, but someone on Twitter said, I think that Joe Biden's best day of 2020 will be on the day he announces. He'll get a little bit of a boost, but then it's all downhill from there because like Hillary Clinton, I think you're going to see that the more he talks, the more unliked he becomes. And this is someone who was a gaffe machine. He can't not put his foot in his mouth. 
He should be trying to win over his own base currently, but it seems like he's trying to win over Republicans. And just, what was it, last year, he told millennials, give me a break because we're complaining too much about student loan debt and not being able to purchase anything like cars and homes that his generation was able to purchase and do what they were able to do and achieve what they were able to achieve. And his response give me a break. So what does he do? In turn, he hires executives to help him, quote, appeal to millennials. It's just downright embarrassing. So Joe Biden is basically the worst possible candidate with the exception of someone like uh, Howard Schultz. But my question to him is, why are you even running in the Democratic primary? Why wouldn't you just switch parties? Because at this point, it's very clear that you don't represent the base anymore. You don't represent the base. You're too conservative. And it seems like you have more in common with Republicans than you do with your own base. So why not just run as a Republican? Primary Donald Trump, if you don't like Donald Trump specifically. I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't know why that's something that seems so unreasonable. Donald Trump really is his own worst enemy because he'll take a situation that isn't really that bad, and then he'll turn it into a thing, something that doesn't need to be a debacle turns into this giant thing because he just can't let things go, ever. He just thinks about it and thinks about it and, you know, he stews over it and he's got to comment on it and then end up looking like a bigger idiot than if he just left it alone. Now, to let you know what I'm talking about, first of all, let me give you the context. So, he recently had a meeting with Apple CEO Tim Cook, and this happened. You got to start doing it over here, and you really have. I mean, you've really uh, put a big investment in our country. We appreciate it very much, Tim Apple. <laughs> I thought that that was funny. It was goofy. But look, we all acknowledge that it was an honest mistake. People were clowning on him, and... Um, Jeff Amazon was trending, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's funny, but obviously nobody's questioning whether or not he did this on purpose or was trying to be malicious. That's not even part of the discussion. The conversation is about, look at this funny gaffe that um, Donald Trump just did. He called Tim Cook, Tim Apple, funny, but Donald Trump saw that people were making fun of him and it just started to eat away at him and eat away at him. And he started to stew over it and he just couldn't let it go. Which led to him then tweeting about it and making matters exponentially worse. Saying, at a recent roundtable meeting of business executives and long after formally introducing Tim Cook of Apple, I quickly referred to Tim plus Apple as Tim Apple, as an easy way to save time and words. The fake news was disparagingly all over this, and it became yet another bad Trump story. Really, dude? You're choosing to tweet about this? I mean, you made a gaffe, and we all acknowledged that it was an honest mistake, but it we were still talking about it because it was funny. When I misspeak oftentimes on the podcast... I'll just laugh at myself because it's funny. We all do it. It's part of the human process. But he had to go and tweet about it and make matters worse because he literally tried to come up with an excuse as if, no, it was purposeful. I didn't misspeak. I meant to call Tim Cook Tim Apple to save time. I don't know if he realizes this, but... <laughs> 
This is actually a scene from The Office. Why waste time? Say lot word when few word do trick. When me, president, they see. They see. Why? <laughs> Why would you say this? Why would you say this, Donald Trump? Why couldn't you just let it go? Why did you have to go and make this a thing? Why couldn't you just admit, look, I misspoke and it's funny, poke fun at me all you want, but you know, we all do this. Everyone would have understood that because, yeah, everyone misspeaks. This is part of the human process. But you had to go and try to justify it to make yourself look better, but you didn't realize you just made yourself look like a fucking idiot more so than you already did. I mean, how much time are you saving by calling him Tim Cook or Tim Apple instead of Tim Cook. See, I just misspoke there. Perfectly fine admitting that. How much time are you saving, Donald Trump? In fact, since Apple has two syllables and Cook only has one syllable, you'd save more time if you just called him Tim Cook. So your reasoning doesn't even make sense, but that's not the point. He said it because he can't stand the prospect of people not thinking that he's perfect. Well, newsflash, buddy, I've got a reality check for you. Nobody thinks you're perfect. We already think you're an idiot and an area where you weren't necessarily being inherently dumb. You just misspoke, which again is something we all do. Now you made it clear that you are the fucking moron that we all laugh at all the time. And as someone pointed out underneath that tweet, Guy who rambles incoherent bullshit for two hours at CPAC 2019 is now splicing names to, quote, save time. Exactly. Why can't you just let it go? He has to respond to any and all criticisms, and he just, he can't just accept. Look, I fucked up. I misspoke. It is what it is. That's life. But he had to try to flip it in order to take back the narrative. I mean, Jesus Christ, if you want to talk about snowflakes, Donald Trump is the biggest fucking snowflake of them all. And he kind of did the same thing with the Kofefe tweet, where later on he said, well, you know, I'll let you guys guess what I mean by that or something along those lines. You just, you, you fucked up typing. It was a typo. Why can't you just admit that you make mistakes? nobody's perfect, you're certainly not perfect, you're an idiot, so we all understand that you're going to probably be more prone to mistakes than the average individual, but if you make a mistake, you just own up to it. I call him Tim Apple. It's funny, I'm glad that you guys all found that humorous. That's what you say. You don't stew over it like a fucking idiot and then try to say, no, I was, I was calling him Tim Apple to save time because, you know, using a word with two syllables instead of one is more um, efficient. I mean, Jesus Christ. I don't know why I'm even talking about this story because this kind of reminds me of the the um, Amy Klobuchar story where she ate a salad with a comb. But, I mean, even though it's not necessarily substantive, it does tell us a little bit about the president and just how petulant he is. Where he can't stand people thinking negative about him, even if it's in the most benign, banal, insignificant sense. He misspoke, but he can't allow us to think he misspoke. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. What a moron. Our president is basically 
Kevin from The Office. Wow. Reality, I think, is officially stranger than fiction. A story recently broke about how elites have been cheating and literally paying bribes to Ivy League schools in order to get their children accepted or improve the chances that their children will get accepted. Now, the college acceptance system is already pretty corrupt. I mean, you have individuals out in the open paying bribes to get their kids into these Ivy League schools. So, for example, Jared Kushner's father contributed, uh, what was it, $2 million or so to Harvard? And then, would you look at that? Jared Kushner got accepted into Harvard. So, the system is already rotten to its core. However, in this specific instance, this nationwide scandal involves individuals who cross the line between sketchy and outright criminality and explicitly bribed individuals to get their kids into school. Now, this includes someone very close to my heart, Aunt Becky from Full House. <laughs> this also includes actress Felicity Huffman, and they were implicated and arrested. There were two of about 50 individuals implicated in this scandal because Aunt Becky reportedly paid a total of 500000 in bribes in order to get their daughters accepted, and Felicity Huffman paid 15000 to guarantee that her daughter got a higher score on a college entrance exam. Now, I think that the general response to this is a collective... Yeah, not too surprising, because as I stated, the system itself is already really corrupt, and it's very obvious that we don't live in a meritocracy. It's not about how hard you work to get accepted into these Ivy League schools. It's about how much money you have and who your family is and if your father and mother attended the same school. And we know that this is true because Ivy League schools have produced some of the biggest dumbasses in our nation's history. Donald Trump attended Penn State. George W. Bush went to Yale and then Harvard to get his MBA. So it's not like they're working hard because these are individuals who are obviously dim-witted, but yet it just shows that they have a better chance at getting into these Ivy League schools and then succeeding because they were born into a family of wealth and privilege. And the reason why elites are trying to do everything in their power, including break the law to get their children into these Ivy League schools, is because it drastically improves the chances that they will be able to make it in life. So the way that I've always viewed these Ivy League schools is nothing more than a gigantic elitist circle jerk. And you've got to understand that my view on this issue is especially cynical because I came from academia. So I'm an individual who actually did work my ass off to make it, to um, get into a PhD program ultimately, because I started out where I didn't finish high school. I got a job instead, but then I taught myself what I needed to know to get my GED. Then I got into community college and was incredibly behind. I spent an extra year and a half studying and then transferred to a four-year college. And I graduated with honors. I then got into grad school, graduated with high honors. I then was accepted into a PhD program only to learn that if I wanted to be successful in academia and what I wanted to do was become a professor and teach political science and study political science, I would be competing for jobs and tenured track positions with Ivy League individuals and essentially I didn't have a chance. 
regardless of how hard I worked in that PhD program I was in, the chance of me actually securing a tenured position teaching at a university would be very difficult because other individuals who maybe they didn't necessarily work as hard as me, but they had better credentials because they graduated from a prestigious school, they would automatically basically have a better shot at become a, becoming a professor than me. So I thought to myself, why is anybody even trying to get their PhD from a non-Ivy League school if this is the result? And talking to my colleagues at the time, it was clear that half of them were basically international students who came from Thailand, Serbia, Ukraine, and the reason why they were getting their PhD in America was simply because they would have a better shot of getting employed in their country simply because they got their PhD in America. And when it comes to my American counterparts, individuals seeking their PhD who were American, well, they were already employed. They were in the public sector or in some cases the private sector and they were trying to advance their careers. There was only like two or three people, myself included, that was trying to get a job with a PhD from a non-Ivy League school. And the other individuals had the full intention to just spend a couple of years at my school and then transfer to a better institution if they can get in. But me, I, I got there and I was like, oh, so this is pretty much where I've hit a wall. I've peaked with regard to my education. And no matter what I do, I can't do as well as people with Ivy League educations, regardless of how hard I work. And that really pissed me off, and ever since then, I've developed this cynical view of higher education, academia, and to see this story, um, it's, it's bittersweet, because it tells me, one, that this has been happening for a long time, so that's problematic, but at the same time, it's nice to see them finally get caught. And in fact, really, I think the most surprising element of the story is the fact that they got caught. But I want to get to an individual who has benefited from nepotism and privilege, and that person is Meghan McCain. And they talked about this on The View, and one component of this story and the privilege and the elitism surrounding college admissions is this aspect of legacy admissions. If your father or mother went to a particular college, then you're going to have an easier time getting in. Joy Behar brought this up, and she talked about how not only is this wrong because it's elitist, but it's also racist, explicitly so. Now, of course, because Meghan McCain is a beneficiary of this, she decided to defend it. Take a look. Okay, there's That's such the a thing as legacy admissions, which means if your parents went to Brown or Harvard or, or, yeah. or you know, UP, you can go. But it's interesting because the idea of legacy admissions is racist in nature, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. It started in the 20s to keep out upwardly mobile immigrants who had started pushing for admission to elite schools. Yeah. And I think that that is a very, very bad system legacy. Why should your kid get in because you got in? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, the only thing I will say That's is not when fair. it comes to I didn't have any. I was the first person in my whole family to go to college. Academies, in military academies, my, my family goes back generations at the Naval Academy, mm -hmm. and that's service to your country. So I would push back in that in that part of it because my grandfather, great grandfather, my brothers, they all served their yeah, country. Yeah, but if you don't have the grades, a, why, should, why should you they benefit? They did have from the grades. That. My brother did, but I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of the fact that my family's legacy is at the Naval Academy. My father's buried there. I, I'm not talking about your family. I'm talking you said about legacy. I'm talking about the policy of where legacy admissions came from. I'm very, so keep, I'm very proud of my family's keep legacy at the Naval Academy. And Jews probably out of the colleges. Well, let me say that's I mean, what it's I, about. Yeah, just the one yeah. quick thing. So what you saw there was an elitist snob defending legacy admissions because, as Jamila puts it, 
she got legacy admission on The View. That's exactly right. And it's not just her. You see this playing out before our very eyes. Chelsea Clinton worked for, I think it was NBC or maybe it was MSNBC. This was back in like 2014, 2015. And it wasn't necessarily that she got hired at this position where she did like four segments and got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars because she's just that qualified and it's worth it. What NBC was doing was buying access to someone who's powerful. And so what what we see here with these legacy admissions and this whole scandal and this elitism in academia is it keeps a specific set of families in power simply because of the family that they have and who they know and how much money they have and if they can donate to Harvard. Like I said, I don't think anyone's surprised by this story, right? But I really hope that the individuals involved in this scandal They're prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and maybe I'm bitter, but I'm sorry. It's already not a meritocracy, but you're making it even less easy for people who want to get access and get accepted into these elite institutions. You're making it harder for them because you have money. Now, are there individuals who work really hard to get into these Ivy League schools? Yes, certainly that that does happen, but for the most part... A lot of the times, all you have to do is be born into the right family with the right amount of money, and you will make it, regardless of how hard you work. Do you honestly think that Donald Trump got good grades in uh, (laughs) at Penn State? I don't think anybody believes that. But you know, it's just this cycle of privilege and wealth in America. So I'm not really surprised that Meghan McCain is defending legacy admissions. It's just one component. And it's really a microcosm of a broader issue, but it's still problematic nonetheless. But it's not surprising to see her defending this because, I mean, her family directly benefited from this. She admitted it, proudly so. So, you know, America is an elitist oligopoly. um, And, you know, this isn't a meritocracy regardless of what people want you to believe. It's just not. That's a fact. That's an objective fact. And um, it's just, it's sad, right? Because we're led to believe that we're a meritocracy and that the American dream is a reality, but it's not. Last week, I gave Democrats credit because they came out swinging on net neutrality, and it's very rare that they actually do what we want them to do. But in that instance, they did a really good job. You had Democrats in the House and the Senate unified on this issue of net neutrality, all vying to fully restore net neutrality. But now I'm going to have to take some credit back because there are two Democrats who are showing their willingness to opt for a half measure and essentially water down their phenomenal bill. So as Carl Bode of Motherboard Vice reports, during Tuesday hearings on the proposal in the House Communications Subcommittee, some Democrats, like Florida Representative Darren Soto, stated the bill was simply an opening offer and that Democrats would be open to amendments for the bill. Others, like Oregon Representative Kurt Schrader, insisted that additional compromise would be needed to ensure passage. Normally, compromise is a healthy part of the legislative process, but activists at consumer groups like Fight for the Future told Motherboard that at this juncture in the net neutrality fight, they're only likely to weaken the popular proposal. It was frustrating to hear Representative Soto say he's open to amendments on the safety 
the Internet Act fight for the futures, Josh Tabish told Motherboard. Given that his office was one of the bill's original co-sponsors, it's hard to view this as anything other than foreshadowing for a backdoor effort to water down the bill or add ISP-approved loopholes. Soto's office did not respond to a request seeking comment on what changes he'd offer. The problem, as activists see it, the FCC's 2015 rules took years, countless hearings, and several court battles to craft. The rules were rebuilt after the FCC's 2010 rules were struck down by the courts. They're the culmination of endless congressional debates over the better part of two decades. In short, the FCC rules were all already a compromise, activists say. And that's exactly the problem. And I wouldn't really be sounding the alarm right now if it was just any Democrat, but one of the co-sponsors is saying we're open to amendments. Now, is an amendment inherently bad? No, not necessarily, because I think that if they can improve the bill and include bans on zero ratings, that would be phenomenal. But I'm not expecting that to happen. Because if history is right again here, well, when you look at the California debate, there were numerous attempts to water it down. Numerous attempts. And finally, what was passed was a very solid proposal to restore net neutrality. However, anytime there were amendments, it was almost always not for the better. It was for the worse. So by opening the door to amendments and at this early stage already kind of waving the white flag in a way... This is opening them up to ISP-approved loopholes, as the article states, because ISPs are doing everything. They're working overtime to make sure that they defeat this and they maintain the status quo that Ajit Pai just crafted in 2017 when he repealed net neutrality. So it's not like, oh, well, we're, we're going to open up amendments for, you know, maybe some Democrats to try to improve it. No, what's going to happen is you're opening it up to be watered down and it's troubling man but i like that organizations like fight for the future they are not taking no for an answer and they're already crowdfunding a campaign to put up billboards to kind of shame democrats like kirsten cinema who have not gotten on board and what you're seeing on screen now is a mock-up essentially saying that she's corrupt and I think that this really is the right approach. You can't really expect many Republicans to do the right thing. So I think our best bet is to put a lot of pressure on Democrats. So I'm going to give you the numbers to the two Democrats who are vocalizing their willingness to compromise. The first is Kurt Schrader. His phone number is 503-557-1324. And Darren Soto's number is 202-225-9889. Um, I would recommend that you call Darren Soto since he's one of the co-sponsors, but I'm going to call Kurt Schrader because he is a representative in my state of Oregon, so I just think that that's more appropriate. So again, that's 503-557-1324. Oops. 1324. Congressman Kurt Schrader, this is John. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo, and I'm a constituent of Representative Schrader, and I just read an article from Vice that Kurt Schrader was essentially opening the door up to compromise on the Save the Internet Act, which is a really strong net neutrality bill, 
And I just wanted to call to urge him to not allow any sort of watering down or compromise because I think this legislation is really fantastic. And unless it's going to be improved, then it doesn't need to be watered down. So I just really wanted to emphasize that Kurt Schrader should not compromise at all. Okay, for sure. I can definitely pass that along to him, sir. Excellent. Um, I get your... Can I get your name and your phone number, please? Yes, my name is... Excuse me. Your your name and your physical address is what I meant. Yes. My name is Mike Figueredo, and my address is... All right, I got your message. Thanks for calling, and I will pass that on to Kurt for you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Bye. Bye. Okay, and it's as simple as that. I don't feel the need to browbeat them just yet, because, you know, they haven't officially said that they're going to water it down. But if we can kind of just nudge them in the right direction, I think that will serve us well because we've seen what happens when they open these bills up. They they get worse because you have one of these shills for Comcast or Verizon and AT&T just get in there and they try to ruin it. We've just got to basically let them know that they need to do the right thing. And if we kind of take the pressure off for a second, this type of stuff happens. So don't water it down. I hope that since leadership like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi is on board, they fight to stop this bill from being watered down, but you have to expect the worst from Democrats and hope for the best because this is kind of just par for the course. So um, don't let them water it down. Pay very close attention because, you know, it's only a matter of time before ISPs try to chip away at this bill because this would be a huge step in the right direction. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far. Shout out to all of our listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to support the show and want to get access to some of our videos before they're released on YouTube and participate in monthly live chats with me, you can do so by clicking join on YouTube. You can go to, um, what's the other option? Patreon.com slash report and um, go to humanistreport.com slash support to sign up to support the show. Thank you all so much. Um, I'm done talking, so I'll see you next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Take care. You could support The Humanist Report at patreon.com slash humanist report. But trust me, I'd have way more supporters on Patreon if that was my podcast. Sad. <laughs>